Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. Um, so we are in 1 Peter chapter 1. Last week we began our journey through this first letter of Peter. I've titled this series as a reminder, Faithful Sojourners, Walking Worthy in a Wayward World, because Peter is writing to encourage and exhort the believers scattered abroad to persevere through the various trials they are facing, namely different levels of persecution it wouldn't be long after the writing of this letter that there was the great fire of Rome. A large fire wrought significant damage to the city. And Nero, who was in charge at that time, is believed to have placed the full weight of the blame on Christians. And while that would have had an impact on the Christians living in Rome, this letter seems to be more focused on social persecution that the so-called elect exiles in the dispersion were facing or they were soon to face. They were looked down upon and even thought to believe in bizarre superstitions. The culture shunned the early Christians for not worshiping the plurality of false gods that they worshiped. And it's with this in mind that the Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the Christians scattered abroad to exhort and encourage them in the Lord. He tells us in chapter 5, verse 12, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Remember the grace of God and stand firm in it. Last week, we saw in his thoroughly theological greeting that he was already preparing the minds of his readers to be thinking of the grace of God as shown to us in Christ Jesus. Namely, that the Father predestined us to salvation, the Son purchases our salvation, and the Spirit applies salvation to each of us, all of this in the opening greeting. In our section today, we will continue to be reminded of the grace of God that we may stand firm in it. The title of our sermon today is The Foundation for Perseverance. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. This is the word of the living God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we sit here with our Bibles open, Lord, we confess that we need the power of the Spirit at this moment, both to empower the preaching of your word and to empower the receiving of your word. Lord, I pray that I wouldn't aim to be anything but faithful to your text. I pray that you would give me the ability to preach clearly and faithfully, and that you would give all of us the ability to receive your word this morning, to see clearly this foundation for perseverance, that we would be so comfortable and so encouraged and so motivated to press on living countercultural in our faith. May Christ be glorified this morning. In your holy name, amen. You can be seated. If you're following along in your bulletin this morning, our first major heading is a formula for praise. In 1758, Robert Robinson, at the age of 22 years old, wrote the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a part of the song that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. The word Ebenezer in the lyric is probably most familiar to our ears from the name Ebenezer Scrooge. But the term is actually from the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, we find the account of a particular event that took place in a place called Mizpah. Israel, as was their custom, had been backsliding and apostatizing from the Lord. When Samuel called them to repentance and they were gathered together at Mizpah to confess their sinfulness before the Lord and to repent and offer sacrifices to God. The Philistines, as you know, were great enemies of the Israelites and they heard that they were gathered together at Mizpah and they said, here's a perfect opportunity for us to go attack them. And so they did. But somehow or another, the Israelites caught wind that the Philistines were on their way. And so in verse 10, it says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. God showed up in a miraculous, supernatural way, single-handedly defeating the Philistines in a way that only God could take credit for. And as a memorial, Samuel sets up a stone. In chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, he says, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. 
Ebenezer means a stone of help. It was for the Israelites for generations to come to remember the works of the Lord and how he has shown his faithfulness till now. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. And he shows his faithfulness to generation after generation after generation. The Israelites for generations to come would have been able to look at this stone monument and call to mind that the Lord has helped us till now. In a very real way, this is what Peter is doing in our passage. He's raising a metaphorical Ebenezer, the greatest event in history, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Christians to look to, to remember what God has done and that he has certainly helped us till now. Peter is employing a common formula here for Jewish prayer that was quite often used in praising the Lord for what he has done. Peter opens up, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed here is not the normal Greek word makarios, which you're accustomed to seeing like from the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man, blessed is the man. That word often means happy. Uh, We, as people, as children of God, can be blessed. God blesses us. But this word here, blessed, actually means worthy of praise. It's an entirely different word altogether. And some translations will actually translate this to say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is not that we are bestowing a blessing upon the Lord as though he were in need of anything, but praising him for he is praiseworthy. At the inauguration of the first temple, Solomon in 1 Kings 8.15, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. Do you see the formula? You open with blessed be the Lord and you go on to recount the works of the Lord, what he has done, why you are praising him. In the Old Testament, as many of you know, when you find the Lord in small caps, the Hebrew that's being translated is God's holy name, Yahweh. This is the name that God gave to the Israelites for them to know him by. It is his covenant name with his people. We see that represented in 1 Kings by Solomon saying, Blessed be Yahweh, who is the God of Israel, because he has done what he promised he would do. This is so important for you to catch. We see this understanding carry over into the New Testament. Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father, was a priest. In Luke chapter 1, Verse 68, he prophesies, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Do you see? There it is again. Blessed be the Lord God. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, 
And here's why. Here are the things that he has done. We now live in the time post the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So we know that in John 14, 9, Jesus said that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. Just making sure you're awake. If you've seen him, we've seen the Father. This shows us that we can no longer think of God the Father apart from God the Son. We now have a fuller revelation of the person of God through the person of Jesus Christ. So now, in the New Testament, you find this blessing of God linked with Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now this is so significant to note. I'm belaboring this point because if you look at verse 6, Peter will go on to say, in this you rejoice. Peter is giving us a formula for praise. And he's grounding his formula for praise in the work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit in Peter knows what's coming upon the elect exiles in the dispersion. And thus he knows that Christians need to be reminded of what's been done. Remember God's faithfulness. So he raises this sort of Ebenezer to remind us of what God has done, that God has helped us till now. This is further indicated in his calling of Jesus Christ, Lord. Look at what he says. He says, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's, this is the same word, kudios, that they use to translate God's holy name, Yahweh. So he is associating God's holy covenant name with Jesus Christ. What are we to learn with this? That God is one. But also that this God is the same God as the Old Testament God. The same God who appeared in the burning bush. He's the same God who brought the Israelites out of captivity through the Red Sea. He's the same God who rained down manna in the wilderness. This is the same God today that he's always ever been. He is the covenant keeping God. So we can trust this Jesus to be as faithful as Yahweh in the Old Testament ever was because it is the same God. These are not different gods. He's not taken on a new persona in the New Testament. We don't have the faithful God in the Old Testament and the nicer but perhaps more unreliable God in the New Testament. It is the same God from Genesis through Revelation. God says, I am God. I do not change. And it is because of that that we can continue to trust him. It's with this rich sentence that our passage begins. Peter, in these three verses, is preparing the minds of his readers for what's to come by reminding them 
of what God has done as the basis for their confidence in the midst of suffering. Listen, today we think we want to find the magic words to help each other out when someone's suffering, don't we? We wish that we could find the perfect combination of words to make them feel better. But the reality is that if you are a Christian, what you look to in any moment is not a magic set of words. It's not anything new. It's simply to revisit the faithfulness of God. Remind yourself of what He has done to be reminded that He will continue to be faithful. Our second heading today is we have a living hope. This is the rest of verse 3. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Last week in verse 2, we saw Peter alluding to the fact that we have been predestined unto salvation by the foreknowledge of God the Father. And he revisits that theme here, but adds another layer of understanding in saying that our salvation, our being born again, is according to his great mercy. We are not born again according to anything that we have done. We are born again according to the great mercy of God. It's remarkable to see that as Peter is laying this groundwork for our confidence in the midst of suffering, the thing that he is focusing on is our salvation. Be reminded that you didn't get yourself here. God did it. Namely, God is who has done all of the work of salvation. As it has been said by men much greater than me in the past, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Here he states that our being born again is according to his great mercy. And this word mercy that you find here is it's really referring to God's great compassion towards his children. It is compassion specifically shown towards offenders by a person or agency or authority. He knew the incredible debt that we owed him. And he chose in his own free will to show us compassion and mercy instead of his wrath. Church, if we would really truly grasp this, the rest of our days would be lived in utter bliss in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial. Why? Because God has saved me. I won't see God's wrath. I now, for the rest of my days, will live in the light of his good favor because I'm his child. You know what that means? And when bad things happen, it's not because God is mad at you. It's not because God has abandoned you. But instead, we know that all things will work together for our good. He did this according to his own foreknowing us before the foundations of the world and his own free compassion towards us. The late R.C. Sproul points out of God's mercy and justice that we as sinners grow so accustomed to God showing mercy 
that when he shows justice, we claim it is unfair. This is why we look at the Old Testament God and we say, well, that's not the God that I know. It's because we have become so accustomed to his mercy that we think justice is unfair. But we fail to realize that from the moment that we first committed a sin against him, we were immediately deserving of his wrath. Thus, every moment, every single second of life from that moment till now has been an act of mercy on God's part towards sinners. Think of the rampant rebellion of God taking place in our country all around us right now. Now, look at the great mercy that God is showing in restraining his wrath. We must be rest assured that one day that hand will drop and wrath will be poured out. Truly, God owes us nothing. Listen, he doesn't owe you a nice, easy life. An easy life, free from trials. He doesn't even owe you or I the next breath that we take. If God should see it fit to take my life this very moment, no one would be able to claim injustice on God's part. Because he owes us nothing. All he does is show us mercy. You understand that if God must show mercy, if God is owing to show mercy, it's no longer mercy. Because mercy is undeserved. But this is the light that we live in as Christians. And instead, we owe him everything. And this is what Peter is immediately reminding his readers. And by extension, the rest of us. The reason you've been born again has nothing to do with you. It is God who caused you to come into newness of life through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Look at Titus chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like. Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Is that not almost exactly what he's saying here? Listen, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In this spiritual rebirth, God causes us to be born again to this living hope. And this is pointing us to verse 4, where he's going to speak of our inheritance. He says, living hope, meaning a sure hope. It is a confident assurance in a certain outcome. Namely, that we will be saved once and for all. That our salvation is absolutely secure. How can we know? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
he bases the certainty of our salvation on the reality of the resurrection. Do you see that? He bases the certainty of our salvation on the reality of the resurrection. Now remember, Peter was a witness to the resurrected Jesus. You and I, we can read about it and we believe it, but Peter saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw them arrest Jesus. He denied Jesus and he saw him. He even ate breakfast with him. He spoke with him. Surely they prayed together. He received commands and instructions from the resurrected Jesus. Church, the tomb is empty right now. Jesus is not there. He's at the right hand of the Father. That is how sure our salvation is. It's as sure as Jesus lives. It's not just a dream or a possibility. Our hope is a sure and steady anchor that keeps us right where we need to be despite the storms of life. As sure as Jesus lives, as sure as he was raised, so will we live eternally and be raised up with him to him. And all of this is according to the great mercy of God. Look at verse 4. We have a guaranteed inheritance. He says, you've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. This would also be so critical for his audience to remember because it is something beyond the suffering and persecution to set their minds upon. All that awaits us in heaven, the fullness of joy, the wiping away of every tear, being sin-free, a glorified body, the rewards for the life we lived in Christ, and God himself are the riches of our inheritance. All of these aspects of our inheritance are being kept in heaven for you and for me. Could there be a safer place for your inheritance to be kept than in heaven? Could there be a better place for this to be kept than in the free from sin dwelling of the Almighty God? This inheritance is said to be imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Let's quickly look at these three words. Imperishable. This word is pointing to the fact that it is eternal. It's a word that even is translated as immortal twice in the New Testament. It indicates being incorruptible. It will not decay, just like a glorified body. Jesus tasted death. He will never taste death again. His body rose incorruptible. And you and I, in the resurrection of the last day, we will rise to have glorified bodies that are incorruptible. That is absolutely incredible. The opposite of this word in the Greek we translate, obviously, is as perishable, mortal. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 15.53 to mean this perishable body, that our bodies have a shelf life. 
They break down. They eventually will be buried. Any of you wake up with strange pains that used to not be there before? I heard a couple of men's. There will come a day where you will have a glorified body that will no longer know corruption. It will be imperishable. But everything we can see, all of our possessions, think about this. All of our possessions, our good health, our relationships, our families, this building we are in, it is all perishing. One day the world and everything in it will pass away. Even earthly inheritances pass away. You could be left a large sum of money, a big beautiful home, a boat, any number of things, and an inheritance passed down from a loved one. But no matter how fantastic it is, it will perish. So question, why would you keep your hope in anything in this world? Why would you base your hope on comfort, on ease, on money, on health, on relationships, when it's all perishing? Undefiled. This means free from stain or blemish, pure, even in the eyes of God, and thus free from the effects of sin. Even if we lived in perfect health all of our days, these bodies would still perish and pass away. Over time, they still break down and eventually we die. This is the effect of sin in the world. Why? Because this world is defiled. We don't know anything that is undefiled in this world. Everything has been affected by sin. Even the animal kingdom. That's how far-reaching the effects of sin are. It affects our relationships. It affects the way we think. It affects everything. But this inheritance that's being kept for us is undefiled. It's free from any stain or blemish or tarnishing of sin. Once we pass over into glory, we will receive this inheritance of ours that is completely free from the effects of sin. Unfading. As if this wasn't enough. Peter tells us this inheritance is unfading. It will never lose its quality or its beauty. It won't depreciate, if you will. You buy a brand new car, and even if you spend $500,000 on a brand new car, it depreciates, doesn't it? Everything loses value, but not our inheritance. It's being kept in heaven, pure, perfect, unblemished, unstained. The early Christians, and by extension, all Christians throughout history, need to be reminded that everything on this earth is perishable. It is defiled, and it will pass away. It will fade we must be reminded not to set our minds or fix our hope on anything down here. Please hear me today. You might get cancer. It might take your life. You might lose your dearest loved one. You might lose your job tomorrow. A million 
things can happen to you because this world is perishing and it is defiled by sin. It is completely ruined by sin. But even if it does, the message that you need to remember and I need to remember is that what we are hoping for is not in this life, but the next one. It's not here, church. Look at the church in Canada right now, Grace Life Church. They were locked out of their building. Their pastor was imprisoned for meeting together. What they need to remember, and they surely are remembering, is that their hope is not even in the building. They're still gathering elsewhere. And I pray that if that were to ever happen to this church, that we would be of like mind. That we would say, we don't need the building. Let's go to a field. I've got a backyard. Let's go to our backyard. Let's go wherever we need to go because our hope is not in this building. Our hope is not in a particular outcome uh, here on this earth. Our hope is in heaven. And our inheritance is being kept for us undefiled, imperishable. It will never fade away. And we have the guarantee that that is the truth because Christ is alive. Lastly, Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our last heading is that we will be preserved by God's power. This is the sort of exclamation point in this long sentence that Peter has written. This is Verses 3 through 5, actually in the Greek, are one sentence. We are being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, God's power through our faith ensures that we will be finally and totally saved at the end of the age. We see a perceived tension here, don't we? Well, is it God's power Or is it our faith that will cause us to persevere? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes my faith feels kind of shaky. Well, the answer is it's both, kind of. Hear Paul's words in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Oh, you'll fail. You'll sin. So will I. We will so often look to the sky and wonder how we can be saved at all. But if we have the Holy Spirit within us this morning, you can rest assured that He is going to finish His work in you. You might have a long way to go. We all do. The standard is God's glory. But you know what? Keep pressing on. Because if God began the work, He will finish it. Why do some people seem to be falling away from the faith today? Why are so many people saying that they have decided that they are no longer a Christian 
because they never were. You can claim Christianity, sure. You can grow up in the church. You can have Christian experiences and memories. But it is only the Holy Spirit working in a person to regenerate them, sanctify them, and ensure their salvation that makes any of us a Christian. It would be easy to look at supposed Christians falling away from the faith and wonder, is my faith going to do that one day? After all, this is, everything is perishing in this world, you said. Every, everything is defiled by sin. Everything is, is going to fade away. But if you have true saving faith in God this morning, it is only because God gave it to you. He began the good work in you. He will see it through to completion. Question, do you think God the Father would send God the Son to die under His righteous wrath, cause you to be born again, keep this inheritance in heaven for you, and then the success or failure of this elaborate plan is all hinged upon your feeble hands. This text would say a very emphatic no, to which our response should be hallelujah. As many have said, if you could lose your salvation, it done would have been gone. You would have lost it by now. Most certainly, it is all hinged upon the Lord. Jesus Christ's blood will not have been spilled in vain. Those he spilled his blood for will be forgiven of their sin. And they will come into full possession of this blessed inheritance on the last day. God himself is ensuring that this will happen by guarding you by his own power. Do you hear that? The power of God. The same power that created everything you see. That set stars in their place. That drew the boundary line for the ocean. That created your DNA sequence that we can't even fully understand. That same God is in himself ensuring that you will be saved. You can rest assured. My salvation is secure. That does not absolve you or I of responsibility now, does it? Well, is this a license for licentiousness? Of course not. Because a true believer will understand our part to play in here through faith. I place my faith in God. It is not my faith that saves it is the object of your faith. It is that it's God's power you are trusting. You're not trusting your trust. You're not trusting your faith. You are trusting God's power. And God's power is likewise assuring that you will make it. This is why you and I should be so comforted by these words. Because this salvation was already purchased by the blood of Christ. Our salvation was planned by the wisdom of God. Our election unto salvation was predestined by the foreknowledge of God. 
And our road to final salvation is protected by God's power. What's left for you or I to do is to persevere in faith. Faith that it is all a work of grace that we have even made it thus this far. That we are here today is all a work of grace. That the Holy Spirit is at work within us. And that faith that we have in God's power will continue to be preserved by God's grace through His power, and He will keep us until the end. So, when you face various trials, and listen, and God ordains suffering for you, remember, it is God who has helped us till now, and it will be God's help that will see us through to the last day. Let's stand. We're going to have a time of your opportunity to respond to God. You can sing along with us with the lyrics printed in the bulletin. You can pray. This is your opportunity to respond to the Lord. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and then Jacob will come forward to do the doxology and dismiss us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much, Lord, that everything in our life is according to your great mercy. We thank you that when we totally grasp this in our life, it will cause us to persevere and will result in praise to your glorious name. We pray that you would help us strengthen those of us who are weak and, and frail, going through difficulties, and help us to place our mind on what you've done, knowing that you will see us through, Lord. We pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.